Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 14 of Immunology and Beyond. In today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Pooja Bakery. But before we jump into the interview, I want to give you all a little bit of updates. This will be the last episode of the season where we interview a guest. The next episode that will be releasing will be a mini-sode where myself, Anna, and Dom are just going to be sharing where we are currently in our academic or industry careers. And then also just share kind of a little bit of insight of where we want to see the podcast go in the future. We hope to take a break during the summer semester, and then we'll hope to come back for the third season in the fall semester of 2021. And now back to our interview with Dr. Pooja Bagri, or as you will hear me call her during the episode, Pooja. I actually met Pooja when I got to the university about 20 in 2018 when I was starting my master's because she was in the lab right across from me. And I this allowed me not only to get to know Pooja in a professional level and just see how incredibly intelligent and the insight that she had in immunology, but also get to know her as a person. And she's incredibly kind. And this will show throughout the episode. She has a lot of personal insight that I and as well as Anna and Dom found very helpful. So Pooja completed her PhD in Dr. Koshuk's lab, where she investigated the role of IL-17 in mediating antiviral T-cell immunity in the female reproductive tract during HSV2 infection. And she also worked in a lot of projects where she was able to determine the role of female hormones in mediating the immune response within the female mice. So after completing her PhD, Pooja continued her passion for science, and she's currently holding a position of a project analyst at the Institute of Infection and Immunity. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed interviewing her and getting to catch up with her again. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Pooja Bagri. All right, so thank you, Pooja, for being here, or as you are now, Dr. Pooja Bagri. So we met each other when I when I got to Merck for the first time, and you were in the classic lab, and I actually got to kind of take after you and learn a lot about like research experience. And I remember when I first got there, I was a little intimidated by you because you seemed like you were like a top PhD student, and you had no time to like deal with me whatsoever. But then it, it was kind of nice that as like the two years of my master's kept going, we got closer and closer. And for those listeners that don't know Pooja, she, when she stains her cells, she has to turn all the rooms off in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the room so that absolutely none of her antibodies get photo bleached. So, you know, that, uh, antibody stain is super perfect, but every time <laughs> we still walk in and she was staining this, I would sing the song, Oh, hello, darkness, my old friend. And I'm sorry, I'm totally tone deaf, but you, you get the idea. Anyway, so Pooja, Pooja and I, uh, became really close and I, she was uh, a good mentor while she was there at, at Merck. She still continues to be an amazing mentor. So I'm really happy to have her here today in the podcast. And yeah, thanks for being here, Pooja. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for having me. I just want to say that I think that was the old school style of staining where people didn't know if the lights could be on or not. So I was trained and I, I believe like when I was trained, I was trained by very, you know, a good expert. So I followed everything to the T. And, you know, I did flow for like 99% of my time during my PhD. So I think turning the lights off gave me great success. <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks for that introduction. And I'm happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, thanks for being here. And certainly if it works, why change it? And I guess to start off the episode, if you can give us like a brief kind of overview of why your educational trajectory has been, you can start 
as early as like your high school career or from your BSc as well? Sure. So I did my undergrad at McMaster and it's kind of funny. I was thinking about it the other day and why did I choose McMaster? To be honest, I didn't even visit McMaster until after I had already accepted my offer. I don't remember why, like I remember going, do you know, doing my research and looking through all the schools and I knew I wanted to go into sciences and McMaster had a really good life sciences program. And I was just like, okay, I'll, I, McMaster seems like a cool place. I looked through the booklet and the pictures looked so nice. And I don't know if that's a good way to make a decision, but that is kind of what made me decide. But at the time, like I'm from Toronto and my parents wanted me to stay at Toronto and I, I was kind of contemplating. And then I got really lucky because I, I got a, a really great scholarship that actually allowed me to choose McMaster. So I came to McMaster, I was in life sciences. And when I was in first year, I still remember we had a lecture by Dr. Mick Bhatia and he talked about stem cells. And I think that was a moment where I was like, oh my God, science is the coolest thing on this planet because he was talking about how you can turn like stem cells, you can turn into any cell you want. And, you know, I was hooked. I thought it was like magic. I, and I think that's why I decided to go into biochemistry because when I had to pick my major, I was like, well, you know, Dr. Bhatia is in biochem and I love stem cells. So I'm going to go into biochem. Um, and so I did biochem uh, while I was at McMaster. I really liked the program. It honestly gave a lot of opportunities to be in the lab and get hands-on lab experience during coursework. So I, I, I really valued that. But then I took immunology. So I took the introduction to immunology course and it was one of my favorite courses. I think I really liked, it was one of the few courses where they had, you know, different professors come in and speak to their expertise. and. I was so there were so many good speakers there, first of all, and just the content, it really was easy to see the relevance with yourself. Like what I mean is that in biochem, we're always focused. We were focusing on like specific pathways and molecules and the nitty gritty. And you kind of miss the bigger picture sometimes. But with immunology, it just felt real. Like I could picture it in my head that, you know, when you get sick, this is what happens. Like it was so relatable. And I think that's what really drew me into immunology. And on top of that, just like, you know, personal, like family, autoimmune, like having autoimmune conditions within my family, uh, medical history and stuff. I was really curious about immunology. So that's sort of where the shift slightly happened, where I was like, OK, immunology might be something I might want to look into during grad school. So that's sort of my trajectory into grad school. Now, I probably didn't do what most people do, which is I didn't really plan for a, a career in research or a you know, grad school even. What I mean by that is I didn't even do an undergrad thesis. I knew nothing about what grad school was. No one I knew, no one in my family had gone into sciences or gone into grad school. So I was kind of like a fish out of water in that sense. And so I didn't plan ahead. Um, I'm not much of a planner in, in that sense. Like I just kind of like to take things as they go. But at the same time, within research, sometimes that's not the greatest approach. So what happened was like by the time I got to fourth year, I was like, oh, wait, like you need to have research experience because when you apply to grad school, you need references, you need, you know, that sort of stuff. And I didn't really have any of that at that point because I didn't, you know, I didn't do research during the summers. I took summers off. I went home. I worked in a camp. I hung out with my friends. I, I didn't really, you know, stick to what 
I guess later on I learned probably would have been a little bit um, more, you know, steps to do if you want to get into research. So um, in fourth year, I realized, okay, I kind of need to figure this out. So I ended up taking two project courses. So essentially what that was is just doing a short-term project in the lab. So they were four-month project courses. I did one in biochem and I did one under the Department of Science and it gave me that opportunity to do independent research before short term, so not like a full thesis. And I also got to obviously work with researchers. So then I was able to build that relationship moving forward in terms of having good references for when I applied to grad school. So that's sort of my trajectory into grad school, I would say. Nice. And then doing your grad school, you were you did a PhD, which was roughly like six years, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I um you know, I went into grad school, like I said, I really liked immunology. So when it came time to decide, I actually took a year off between undergrad and graduate school because I wasn't very prepared. So I didn't really apply to anything until I had finished undergrad. I came back home for a year. I was working again, doing working with the city of Toronto. I did a lot of programming for kids. And so during that year off, I liked it. It was a good break, honestly, knowing how long grad school can be. I enjoyed that year off. It was a nice break mentally, as well as just like, you know, a step back especially undergrad can be so grueling as well. Um, so during that year, I looked into different programs. Uh, I did look at U of T and again, McMaster. And then I was debating between immunology or biochem. And the reason I ended up choosing immunology really was the lab I ended up being with, which is uh, Dr. Charu Kaushik was my supervisor. The focus is a lot on women's reproductive health. And for me, that really drew my attention in because of my interest outside of research, which is really, I was big into advocacy for women and continue to be. But during high school, I actually volunteered with the YWCA and I worked there for a while as well. And so my passions are a lot around community work. And when I saw what the work in Dr. Kashik's lab was, which is there was a link between women's health and they also work with a clinic in Toronto, a, a women's health clinic. I was like, you know, this is kind of interesting. Maybe I can sort of merge my passions in research with my passions for sort of like social justice or social issues. So that's how I chose my lab. Now, it ended up being that I was actually working on completely different work. I got put onto a project where I was doing animal work. And so that wasn't something I was expecting. And uh, yeah, I started off just as my master's. And then I did the typical debate of, am I going to transfer? Am I not going to transfer? Ended up transferring and doing my PhD. And yeah, the total process were like roughly five to six years. Nice. Sounds like quite a story. And then, and then right now you're working for CHR, right? Yes, I'm working, which uh, my supervisor from my graduate studies, Dr. Charu Kaushik, uh, happens to be the scientific director for the Institute of Infection and Immunity. And so I still work for uh, Dr. Kaushik, but under in a different capacity. Nice. Yeah. And we're looking forward to hearing how the job's going so far. Uh, but before we do that, I think it'd be interesting to hear a little more about kind of the research that you did during your PhD. You said that you were looking to work with, you know, the relationship between women's health. Is that was the research that, we, that you were doing in animals still related to women's health, though, even though that it wasn't directly with like patients, let's say? Yeah, exactly. So it just happened that when I joined the lab, the project that Charu really needed a student to take on was looking at the mechanisms um, around some of the work that was being done. So just to give a brief overview in the Kaushik lab, 
we were interested in, and the work is continuing to understand how female sex hormones impact immune responses. So we, especially now we hear a lot about how, what a difference, you know, uh, how different immune responses could be in males versus females. And we don't really know a lot of those mechanisms. So in the Koshik lab, with the focus on sexually transmitted infections, for example, both HIV and HSV2, there was a lot of information and literature around the fact that different hormonal contraceptives could actually influence a woman's susceptibility to acquiring a viral infection, specifically HSV2 and HIV. So for example, the two most common hormones, progesterone and estrogen, had differential effects on susceptibility. So they were finding was that progesterone was linked to increase, increased susceptibility, whereas estrogen was linked to protection. But there was no idea why or how this was happening. And the side of the project I was working on in the lab was really understanding those mechanisms and looking into the, you know, immune immune responses in terms of dendritic response, dendritic cell responses, as well as T cell responses. And so when I started in the lab, I was really fortunate to work with previous students who were kind of wrapping up. And I think that made a huge difference because I was able to take on a project where a lot of the really hard groundwork was already done and laid out for me in the sense that I wasn't figuring things out necessarily that you know, were super, super difficult and a lot of troubleshooting was involved. So for as a master's student, that was really helpful because as you guys know, as researchers, like that could take a lot of time. So I sort of uh, adopted a program uh, like this project from a, a previous PhD student. And when I came in, the focus of my project was on IL-17. So this is a cytokine produced mainly by TH17 cells, but also is produced innately as well. So it's a little bit interesting because there's an innate role for the cytokine as well as an adaptive role. And what, what the previous student had seen was in estrogen um, or estradiol treated mice, there was actually an increase in the TH17 response. So we were trying to understand, okay, is that why estradiol treated animals are better protected against herpes infection? Is it because of this enhancement in the TH17 response? And so that's sort of that question, that central question that started my grad grad work. And so I was looking into that. I was using a knockout model where we had IL-17 knockout animals. It was kind of cool. Like, I have to say, just as a, um, I guess, disclosure, I am terrified of mice. I continue to be terrified of mice. Like, if I were to see one right now, I would jump up on, you know, on my chair and scream, but in the lab, it was very different. And, and that was one of the things I have to say, one of my biggest barriers was overcoming that fear. So when I started and Charu said to me, well, if you want to be in this lab, the project is animal work. I just, I was so nervous because I was like, well, I need, you know, I, I really want to be in this lab. You know what? Fine. I'll do it. And it, you know, normally I probably would have said no, but I'm really glad I took that step and kind of went against my instincts because it got to, got me here, right? So anyways, I have to handle animals a lot. And so, what, and the cool part I'm saying is that we actually get to do a procedure, it's called ovarectomies, where we would remove the ovaries out of these mice. So we got to do a lot of survival surgery. So we would get these mice, we would, we would open them up, take out their ovaries, close them up. And all, we did this because hormones influence so many different aspects of you know, immune response. And if we're specifically trying to study the effects of hormones, it's easier to remove the endogenous source of hormones, which in this case, the ovaries are obviously always secreting these hormones. So 
once we remove those hormones, we get a controlled setting where we can then manipulate that hormonal microenvironment to see the effects of specific hormones, right? So I got to do a lot of survival surgery. Once the ovaries were removed, the mice would have to recover. Then we would treat them with estradiol pellets. Uh, so I got to do survival, like a different type of survival surgery. We we're actually inserting these pellets into these mice. And then later on, we would do different like immunization infection um, challenges with them with HSV2, so herpes infection. And so it was really cool. But also, if you can imagine, the experiments took a really long time because of these little things. Um, you know, the animals needed time to recover. So when I did one experiment, it would, you know, I wouldn't see results for a good, I don't know, over two months. Also because of the model we were using, we had to immunize them, we had to challenge them, and there was a lag time in between that. So typically my experiments lasted like eight to 10 weeks. Um, and in grad school, that can be like an eternity. But um, yeah, that was sort of uh, how I got into it. And then, so during my master's, I really focused on that IL-17 component, understanding what was happening. And I, towards the end, I actually had a pretty good story going on. And that I think that's what really influenced me to transfer is because at that point, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And it just came down to like, okay, did I want to continue this work to do my PhD? Or did I want to start fresh? Because I was also struggling with do I want to stay in like basic immunology, basic sciences? Or do I want to pursue something a little bit different, which was global health, um, which we can talk about later when I talk about my current role. But um, I was kind of struggling at that point. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to defend my master's. But because my project was going so well and there was so much promise there, I think that really was like what attracted me to stay. And I knew I had kind of a publication together. So I ended up transferring. And right after that, I got my first publication out, which was looking at that role of IL-17. And essentially what we were able to show, which was cool, was that in these IL-17 knockout mice, what we were finding is that these mice were more susceptible to HSV2 infection. So this is without any influence of hormones, just straight up IL-17 knockout animals. If you remove hormones and you make and you infect them with HSV2, they were more susceptible. So, you know, there's greater mortality, there was greater disease pathology in these animals. And then using flow cytometry, we wanted to understand why that was happening. So we were looking at the T cell responses and spe specifically. And we focused on uh, TH1 responses, so the production of interferon gamma. Now, interferon gamma is what's known to be protective against herpes infection. And so what we found was that in these IL-17 knockout mice, there was actually a significantly reduced interferon response. And so we, what we kind of figured from that and what it suggested was that perhaps in the absence of IL-17, there's this attenuated interferon response, and now these mice are, you know, more... I guess, less protected against herpes infection. And so uh, that was my first paper and it was my first, uh, it was really my master's work. But then for my PhD, I shifted more to the hormone side. So like I said, you know, we've been looking at the effect of all these hormones. And although my master's work wasn't really focused on the hormones, my PhD work was heavily focused on the hormones, specifically estradiol. And so estradiol is known to be protective against herpes infection in mice. But again, we don't know the mechanism. And so what I did during my PhD was try and understand that mechanism. And here is where I focused on tissue resident memory T cells. So with T cells, there's all these different subtypes. And one of the, I guess, more novel subtypes that have been focused on over the past few years are these tissue resident memory T cells. So these are T cells that 
are, you know, get primed to respond to a pathogen, but they actually stay at that local site long term. So you don't need to wait for T cells, you know, to come in from the lymph nodes. These are T cells that actually are primed, ready to go at the site of potential infection. So in the case of herpes infection, what we were finding is that if you're immunizing mice, they, you know, we would immunize them with an attenuated strain of the virus. They would mount this T cell response. Some of those T cells would stay within the vaginal tract for my project specifically, so that when you challenge the mice, those T cells can respond right away and obviously help protect against that subsequent infection. And the interesting part of it was that we found in the presence of estradiol, these mice actually had way more of these tissue resident memory T cells. So we were thinking in terms of the bigger picture, perhaps this means that estradiol actually influences somehow um, the retention or the generation of these memory T cells at the local site. And then perhaps this is why we see better protection in estradiol treated mice. So that's sort of the, the overall view of my, of my um, PhD. Primarily, a lot of the work I did during my PhD was to look into that to see if that was true. But I got to do so much uh, stuff during my PhD that now that I think of it, that was just one part of it. And I also through this whole time, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a supervisor who just really let me do what I wanted in the sense that I got to really explore my like scientific curiosity. Every time I had a question or had something I thought would be cool to look at, she really trusted me to kind of run with it and, uh, and look at and look at those sort of hunches I had. And so it worked out really well because I got to do so many things beyond just what I thought I would do during my PhD. And that definitely made it made it worthwhile for sure. But yeah, I guess just to quickly, I guess some of my final what I my final findings from that work was that we not only looked at T cell responses in the vaginal tract, we actually got to track T cell responses from the site of immunization to the site of challenge. So what I mean by that is, like I said, in my model, I was doing an um, sorry, I was doing an immunization model with herpes. But an interesting thing about the mouse model is we do intranasal immunizations. So with herpes, you know, we often think of the vaginal tract because that's where you would acquire the infection. But what we know, especially because of the mucosal immune responses and how the mucosal sites are all connected, is that if you immunize the mouse intranasally, you can actually mount an immune response in the vaginal tract, which is, to me, when I was learning all this, I thought like, wow, that it kind of blew my mind to be honest, because if you think of it uh, in terms of real life application, people will probably be more likely to take some sort of vaccine intranasally versus, you know, something intravaginally or even, you know, so to me, I thought, okay, there's a lot of like real life importance here in that sense, but we actually don't know how, how intranasal immunization leads to protection in the vaginal tract. We still don't know but what I was able to do during the last few years of my PhD was try and see if the effects we were seeing of estradiol in the vaginal tract were actually happening at other sites, specifically sort of from the nasal mucosa into the vaginal tract. So this was, and it's kind of cool. And as a PhD student, you know, you do your comprehensive exams, for example, this was actually my comprehensive exam 
topic because it's something I had always thought about. We use this model, we do intranasal immunization, it leads to protection of the vaginal tract, but we don't really know anything in between. Like what's happening? Can we like track this kinetic response? Can we see why this is happening? So I really framed my comprehensive exam on that. And because, like I said, my PhD supervisor was, was super supportive of my research, I was able, I was actually able to pursue that during my grad studies. And I work closely with one of our collaborators, um, the Stanfly Lab, because they, you know, they do intranasal models. They they're really focused on the respiratory. So we were able to bridge sort of that respiratory attract what's happening up there to what's happening in the vaginal tract and nicely look at the effects of estradiol on all of those sites. And so um, my final paper out of my PhD was a little bit about that work. And what we found is that estradiol was enhancing these tissue resident memory cells, not just in the vaginal tract, but also in the nasal mucosa. And that we we also looked into, again, the role of IL-17 and showed a link of IL-17 there as well. So yeah, I... I'm, I think that it turned out to be a lot more than I ever thought it would. I thought it would be for sure. That is a crazy story. And it's kind of cool how, you know, you started with just looking at the IL-17 knockout and just kind of seeing how that played a role and you found that key. And then you moved on to seeing how estrogen, you know, had a role in T cell, like memory T cells. And then you took that beyond just, okay, we're moving away from just vaginal mucosa to respiratory mucosa. And I think that's like the coolest part because you 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 get to see the whole story through. And I, I imagine by now, well, you, when you're describing it, you sound like an expert, like you, you understand everything that's going on and it must be a, a great feeling, right? Yeah, and you know, I have to say, there's actually a funny, I guess there's a few things I wanted to say about this actually, now that it's come up. One, it wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't at somewhere like Merck, first of all. Merck is so unique that we get all these experts in the space and everyone's so collaborative. And, you know, Dr. Stanfley was on my committee. He was one of my committee members and he's a great mentor. And I, I was, I got really close with his lab. So when I was doing this, like, it was really cool because I could just, you know, go across the hall and be like, hey, you guys are experts at this. Are you going to help me out? Because I knew nothing. Like, I don't know how to extract mucosal tissue from the nate. Like, it's, first of all, super complex, like removing nasal mucosa. Already working with, the, it's it's funny, working with the vaginal tract is super difficult. I have so many stories about how hard that can be. And it's such a messy tissue and how complicated it is. But the nasal mucosa, equally difficult to work with. So you know, I got that expertise because of the way Merck is. And I was so grateful. And I got to learn so much more. Like you said, it wasn't, I didn't feel I was confined to just being, you know, like vaginal tract and knowing all that I was able to expand that. And second, the funny thing about this whole idea of TRM cells, if you can believe it, you know how everyone always says like you, you really learn a lot from experiments that don't work. This was a prime example, but to an extreme in the sense that when I was doing my master's in that first year, actually, and I think this was one of my biggest learning experiences, I, because when I came into my, my master's, I had a little bit of research experience, mainly through courses. But I was really out of my element. Like I, to me, it was a huge learning curve. I was learning everything new. Like, you know, 
but I am a pretty fast learner and I picked up things really quickly and I think that's why it worked out for me but I learned I was learning a lot and so what I really did was try to learn from everyone around me like any opportunity I had to watch people do experiments to you know tag along to do a sack or do animal work like I was there like I was like you know what I need to learn as much as I can soak it up because I, I knew I had that learning curve I needed to overcome so my first year, we were actually putting together this publication for PLOS Pathogen. And, and this was the previous student that I was training from who was doing this. And because the way the lab was fluctuating at the time, I was the only new person coming in to do animal work. I had a great opportunity to really spearhead a lot of the revisions for that paper. Now that can take that can be a big responsibility, especially within your first year of your master's and not having any experience. But I really, I think, embraced that opportunity. And I just like we did an 80 mouse experiment. Now, when I say 80, like 80 mice, we had to, like I said, do surgeries on, you know, follow for all these weeks, do <laughs> do hormone treatments on. We had an 80 mouse sack. Um, we started it like I don't know, 4 a.m. And this was like the story of my life during my, I, my experiments would start at like 2 a.m. And I'd be in the lab till midnight the next day. Like that was my life. But this 80 mouse experiment was so intense. Like Charu was in the CAF with us sacking these mice at 5 a.m. We had like this rotation going where, you know, we would be doing it in batches because like I said, the vaginal tissue is super tricky. Like digesting it is a process. It takes like two, three hours just to get cell, like it's it's something else, right? So we do this 80 mouse experiment because we're trying to answer one reviewer question. Uh, and um, we do the experiment and we're sitting there and analyzing this data because when you've done an experiment like that, you don't wait to analyze the data. Like we're in the lab, it's like 6 a.m. and we're like, what what are we seeing here? And, and um, it's not always the smartest thing, but we're on the computer and we're like, Oh my god, I don't think it worked. Like we're sitting there like, oh, we don't think this experiment worked. Um, I don't know if it worked. I still call it the it sorta worked experiment, but it was so interesting. That's where we found like it was something we weren't looking at for that experiment or that paper in particular. But you know how flow is. We got to throw in a bunch of different markers to look at, and uh, some of those markers were these memory markers for T cells, CD sixty nine, CD one hundred three, and while we were more interested in the interferon response, that's what I mean, like we didn't really see what we were looking at, but we started to see like, for some reason in these estradiols treated animals, there was bigger like memory, like CD103 positive cells, that population was larger, the CD69. And that was kind of something that kind of stuck. And a few years later, when it came to doing the transfer, we used some of that as preliminary data. So. I guess what I want to say is like no experiment is wasted. I mean, at that time we were crushed. We were like, I can't believe I just like, you know, dedicated months of time and this, none of that data went into our plus pathogen paper, but I mean, it made the basis of my PhD. So um, yeah, I guess that was, that was something really, it's just funny. It's funny when you look back, but yeah, I, I think that it's always, there's always a learning experience there. There's always something you can take away. Um, sometimes small things, but sometimes big things like this. You know, you love to see that one question from a reviewer uh, or from revision leads to an 80 mouse experiment. That That is that's incredible. <laughs> Did you had an 80 mouse experiment uh, before any revisions or was that going to be the largest experiment if it had worked out? Oh, no, that was our largest and we went for it. Like I said, you oh. know, our, 
supervisor, our supervisor was all about, you know, like with the revision, there was a few, we actually had to do a few for that one, especially because it was POS pathogen. And, you know, it's very, it was a very mechanistic paper and study. And, uh, you know, kudos to the previous student. So much work went into that. We had like three different knockout models in there. And there was so many specific elements looking at vaginal DCs. I thought I had it hard with like vaginal T cells, but vaginal DCs took it to a next level. And that's what that paper was. But yeah, no, we had never taken on such like at one time. No, uh, um, it's something I think I'll never forget for sure. For sure. Did you ever have another mass experiment that big or was that like the biggest? I want to, okay. You know, uh, one thing I didn't talk about during my PhD, and that's because it was my side project. And this is the funny thing about research, right? My side project was the hardest thing I did during my PhD. And I really hope one day, because it, it's not published anywhere and we haven't really gotten to it because it's something that I... Un <laughs> I did a lot of work. I did a lot of work on it. And it, again, it came from sort of what the previous previous student was doing. And it was Charu's, you know, again, very just curiosity driven question, because essentially, like I said, there was a lot of work being done on the mechanistic elements of like, okay, what are hormones doing that are leading to these drastic results and differences in the T cell responses? So when you're looking at T cells, you want to understand why is this T cell response doing what it's doing? you take a look at the DCs, right? What are the DCs doing to prime these T cell responses in a certain way? And so Charu wanted to take it to the next level. And this was from, a, again, a reviewer's comment, but we never addressed it, um, but it came later, right? Because the reviewer really drew Charu's curiosity because she, the reviewer had said, if you could show us what's happening to these DCs under the influence of these hormones in terms of, are they being programmed differently? That would, you know, that would really answer your question here. So that's a fundamental question, right? Like, are hormones reprogramming DCs in a, in a certain way? And so around this time, when this question had come up, this was probably like 2016 or 2015, um, you didn't see a lot of what's happening now, right? Which is a lot of this, um, I guess, like single cell sorting, all that kind of stuff wasn't as... Uh, or at least not in to my knowledge, like as um, common, common as common, especially like we hadn't we hadn't really we we hadn't done too much of it in terms of um, before this student took it on. But in our lab, we used to sort out vaginal DCs. Now we would sort. We would have to sack around twenty mice to get. Oh my goodness, the number. Um, 50,000 sometimes DCs. So again, <laughs> the experiments we took on, um, when that student left, it was me by myself. And so my side project during my PhD was, okay, let's sort vaginal DCs from estradiol treated animals and mice with no hormones. And let's see what's happening. Let's extract RNA from sorted DCs and see what's transcriptomics telling us what's happening at that level. Uh, so that's what I did. And those experiments were my most difficult experiments. Um, I said vaginal tracts are hard to work with with mice, but um, when you have a mouse without any hormones, it takes it to the next level. The tissue is like trans, like it's so thin, you can see through it, it's transparent. It's you get, I would, I would easily have to like pool, even during my flow experiments, like throughout 
my graduate studies, I always compared my non-hormone control, which is these, we call them mock-treated animals. They don't have any hormones, but they're over-rectomized. So even in my typical flow experiments, I used to have to pull six to eight mice just to get enough cells to run flow, which is like around a million cells I would get from that. So now sorting DCs from those animals, like it was just unreal. And so, yeah, I like you asked me, did I have... 80 mouse experiments? No, but um, typically 40 mice for sure. Um, and towards the end, yeah, I was doing a, like, of course there was help here and there, but I was carrying those experiments often like, you know, pretty solo until we did get other people coming in that could help. But um, that side project of doing transcriptomic work on vaginal DCs was my side project. And it was, uh, we got, we find, it took so much troubleshooting to get enough cells because we would sort out these vaginal DCs and it was only thanks to Hong in the flow facility who was amazing. And we would, do, our sorts would take six hours. By the time you sorted those cells out, they'd be dead. Like we went through so much troubleshooting, but then towards the end, we finally got a system that worked. We were sorting, you know, pre-sorting them. I would do like a pre-sort during my process before I would during my processing stage. And then I would do flow sorting and we got it working. We got enough RNA. We've done a few transcriptomics, you know, we sent it out for that. And um, I have a bunch of data, but I, it, it still needs to, it still needs to be put together, I would say. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot, a lot of cool different things I did during my, during my PhD. I definitely remember you talking about those experiments when you were still at the lab, like right before you defended and you always said it wasn't fun, but I hope to see that paper come out. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so too. It'll be really, honestly, it'll be really cool to see. And um, hopefully, hopefully either another student comes along that I can sort of work with to get that done, but it would be cool to see that published. Nice. Um, by the way, congratulations on the huge amount of work that you did. It's, it's really cool. And again, I said, hopefully the last, you know, kind of puzzle piece fits in and then gets published at the end. It's really interesting because like just your journey, I draw a lot of parallels with like taking a year off and like going into it kind of unsure, but coming through immunology by like happenstance. So really just like looking on your PhD, it's usually like said that grad school, yeah, you learn a lot of technical skills, you learn a lot of like soft skills, but you also learn a lot about yourself. So what were some of like the hardships that you faced during your PhD and kind of what were some of the most important skills that are most important things that you learned about yourself through those hardships? Uh, yeah, it's a great question, actually. And I think this is what happens when you're writing your PhD thesis. It's so much reflecting. Like, I, I still remember when I was writing it and I was writing my acknowledgments and I was like, man, I wish I had written, written my acknowledgments first because I felt that's where I got to really reflect. But by the time you've written this like 300 page thesis, you're so tired of writing that it's like, a little bit daunting, but just reflecting back, like, I feel like I grew so much as an individual. I mean, I was always, like I said, going into it, I was so unsure about so many things. I didn't know if I could do it. And, and just being able to accomplish this one giant thing was such a huge accomplishment for me, um, for so many reasons. And so I think like, just growing as a person, being able to do go into something not knowing if you could do it and doing it was probably the biggest thing I think when I reflect back but in terms of like hardships um yeah being able to learn everything that I did was a little bit difficult like I said trying to overcome my fear of mice for example um that was huge and then just having the confidence uh really to 
to know that you belong. I think that's a huge thing for me. Um, like I said, I didn't really have any idea of what grad school was like. No one I knew, like, I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. I just kind of went into it. And I'm so glad I did. Like, thinking back, even though there was all these late night experiments and all these crazy things along the way, I think back and I'm like, it got me to where I am. And I wouldn't have changed it for that reason alone. And then um, I think for me, another thing is like, personally, I'm, I'm a pretty like reserved person. And I found that that was a little bit difficult at first, just I wasn't, you know, especially when you're trying to collaborate and work with people, you have to kind of step out of that comfort zone. And I think that's where, again, like being able to present your science, for example, you really learn those skills, and you kind of build that confidence in yourself. And um, I think that being able to step out on my shell a bit was something I had to learn to do, but I'm really glad I did. Um, and it just, yeah, it just allowed me, it opened up so many doors, right? Like the more I engaged in different extracurriculars that I was doing, different groups I was part of, and then even just talking to people, making friends, like all those little things made it all kind of worthwhile, but I really just had to push myself to do it. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think I would just say that overall, it was just the greatest learning experience I've ever had to be honest. Um, and I went into science just because I love to learn for no other reason. It was, I never knew why I wanted to do my, you know, PhD. There was, of course, this idea of um, personally, for me, it was a little bit personal in the sense that like, my parents had, it's really funny, you always hear about parents that were like, oh, be a doctor, you know, go to med school. And my parents never said that to me, but they did always like want, they were always like, you know, you should get your education. Education is so important. Like that was always something I was told and I really believe in. And, you know, my parents being immigrants, like for them, they were here to give us a better life and they were here to tell us, like, you know, let us have opportunities they didn't. So there was really personal for me because I wanted to do this because like, you know, it was, my parents weren't able to do these things. And so for me, like they, instead of telling me to go to med school I'm not kidding like my dad would be like oh I want you to get a PhD and I was just like okay I'll try my best but um anyways so for me like that was a huge motivation as well but again getting over that sort of imposter syndrome was difficult but I but I was able to do it and, and I think that's something like everyone in grad school needs to keep in mind is that you do belong like you know there's no traditional route to this there's no story that fits like everyone's story is different you know there's no mold you need to fit into um just do it and do it your way is what i would say yeah i think that's really great advice like um you just kind of touched on having immigrant parents like i guess it comes in um a different way really because like you're, they're here really to provide for you. And like you mentioned that they didn't necessarily have the opportunities or the chances to do what you really did. And it's just great because it's like you're kind of in a way giving back to them almost and kind of in a way just kind of supporting everything that they went through for you. Just, yeah. Yeah, what for are your sure. thoughts on that? This feeds into my whole like experience in grad school, which was always, like I said, take every opportunity you can get, like, you know, make the most of it. Um, you have to really do that for yourself. No one's going to do it for you. You have to be your biggest advocate. So for me, that's kind of the approach I always take in life. And I've always been like that. And I did that throughout grad school. It was always like, you know, if I want something to happen, I got to make it happen, right? No one's going to do it for you. No one's going to hand it to you, especially for me, like, based on my experience and based on the fact that as a minority, uh, individual, sometimes you got to work harder. And, um, you know, 
it is sort of my reality, but I've, I've kind of embraced it in that sense. And that's why, like, I always feel, um, I will always, and I don't know, you know, Anna and um, Eddie, like having met them, I was always that type of person that like, if someone needed help, I was always going to help them because I wanted to make it easier for them. Right. Like, I don't want people to go through the struggles I went through. That's not the point. Why? Like, I sh others shouldn't have to struggle just because I did. I would want to make the path easier for others. So that's sort of kind of the approach I took. And I always tried to help as much as I can in any aspect. And um, really and truly, it's kind of like the essence of like my life, I feel. And like, and I think I, I, I didn't really um, touch on this maybe earlier, but in terms of my extracurriculars, even like that attachment to community was really important to me for these reasons of where I come from, um, which, you know, is an environment where it's not very easy to succeed all the time and you know i grew up in an area in toronto where it was considered to be a low-income area it was considered to be somewhere where you know all these names in the media were thrown around uh, around about it but it really made me stronger and it grew that resilience which definitely helped me in grad school because in grad school you need to be resilient if that's the one thing anyone wants to take away from this is in grad school you gotta you gotta persevere and you gotta be resilient honestly the effort is what matters. The outcomes are less important. And um, just being able to get through it is the, the toughest task. And so I always see my journey sort of in that lens of like, I am always, I'm always about the underdog. And so I always feel like I'm an underdog and I'll always help support the underdog. So for me, that's sort of like the approach I took and that's sort of my journey, I would say as a whole in life. Yeah, honestly, that's, that's really amazing to hear. It's really amazing to hear like your really like your drive to be able to help people who are like behind you and help them get through, especially like based on your experiences and kind of helping to carve the way um, for other students as well, or just people in general in life and in community. Um, so you kind of mentioned and you kind of touched on pushing through and persevering and really persisting through all of these like hardships. What were some of the tangible things or some of the the things you kind of told yourself and reminded yourself as you were going through these difficult times? Yeah, that's a good question because it's, although, like I said, I, I've, I've been, I'm a very like, you know, self-motivated driven individual, but at the same time, it's not possible without the people around you and the community you build, the support systems you have. So for me, like that was key. And if, if there's one thing I have to say about grad school is you make really great friends. Like I made some of my best friends who I plan to be friends with for a very long time with because, you know, there's something else about going through grad school. It's a shared experience. Like I can tell my non-science friends, you know, I can vent to them and, and complain about things, but they don't, they're not going to get it the same way, you know, uh, you and I would. So for me, like that was huge was just having a really good solid support system of like other grad students, like when you're in the lab for eight, nine, 10 hours, and just coming out and sitting in the hall and just like exhausted and being able to just like talk to somebody who knows exactly what you're going through. It's a different feeling. And it's, it's so important and helpful. So for me, like, that's why I said, like, being able to step out of my shell and make those friendships made the biggest difference for me, I would say I was able to like, have people to go to to help me and just be there for me. That was really, it was really key. And then like, just family. Uh, the one thing like I would say, I guess, even as advice was like, I always tried not to let grad school be my life in the sense that in the beginning, as a master's student, it's a little bit difficult. I felt like I always had to be in the lab. I had to be there during the weekends. I had to just work, work, work. 
But then when I got into my PhD, I realized like, if this is going to be my life for the next few years, like I can't, I can't stop living other elements of my life, right? So um, I always tried to make sure I didn't miss out on big, important things in life in terms of like family or events or things like that. And that helped me a lot. Um, I traveled, I tried to travel every year, like I would take my vacation. I, I know as a grad student, that can be difficult. But I would take, I traveled every year, I would travel to a different country during grad school, because I love to travel. And it was just such a good break. And so those are sort of the, the things I think I, I did to keep myself sane and just to get through it all. Yeah, like, I think a lot of our guests on the podcast has really been an overarching trend of grad school, like you mentioned, grad school is a shared experience and getting through the hardships of grad school, you need to have good people around you. And just by virtue of it being really difficult, um, you kind of come together in that. And yeah, I think that's like, that's pretty amazing. And kind of what you mentioned in terms of um, all of the different things that you went through to prevent or not prevent, but be able to get through those hardships. I think a lot of us um, can relate to that as well. So I think we're going to move on into the career-based uh, questions, and Anna can go ahead and ask you some of those. So thanks. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say before we start this section that I'm very thankful that you came onto the podcast because just your story is so important because I see you as someone who has just worked so hard for everything they've achieved. And you've achieved so much and like you said i can just really relate to your i guess your path because like you said you don't have family who have has gone through academia or has done like a phd and that's the same as me and so seeing someone who looks like me and has made it onto the other side is kind of like inspiring and also just pushes uh people like me to continue on to that trajectory because you're someone who has done it so I just want to say thank you <laughs> honestly like we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us right that is so true and if we don't and the thing is I don't think this is talked enough about in science maybe now hopefully moving forward it will be because of the climate but you know in science it's hard like we don't talk about things outside of research right like the personal element of things is really missing it's lacking you don't hear people share these things with you right like you have people come in speak to you about their science their research which is super important and um you learn so much from but sometimes like hearing these things could make a big difference like you just said right like if you could hear the, the struggles sometimes that are just beyond the typical like failed experiments or you know not I don't know, not doing so great in school, but really understanding what it means as a whole, like seeing where everyone comes from. Like I said, we all have such unique stories. And I think sometimes that's missed out in science and the space that we're in. So I don't know, I hope that like I see your podcast as being something that people could share some of those other elements about themselves. So that's really that's really cool. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to more of, about what you're doing currently. And so like you've uh, mentioned, you're now working at CIHR at the Institute of Infection and Imm Immunology as a project officer. So could you tell us a little bit more about what your decision was into uh, getting this role and what your day to day looks like? Yeah, for sure. So I, I had kind of mentioned before that one of my interests I was thinking about was going into global health. Um, 
I got into immunology because I thought biochem was too, you know, in the weeds, technical pathway driven. And then I got into immunology because I felt it was more reflective of like real life sort of health problems I could relate to or think about and conceptualize, but it still didn't meet like the global aspect of it that I was missing, which was more like that community, like that being able to just be understanding what people go through and how to directly help people. I, I kind of found like I was still in the basic science element. Um, so that's why I thought about global health. And so with this role, uh, like I said, my supervisor, Charu Kaushik, became the scientific director in 2018. It was a really unique experience because she holds both positions. So she still runs her lab. She still does the research, but now she's also in this other role. Um, and the Institute of Infection and Immunity is one of 13 institutes um, under CIHR. And it's a little bit unique because these are all, we're all considered virtual institutes in the sense that we're all housed in different um, universities. So right now, the Institute of Infection and Immunity, which we call III, is based out of McMaster because Charu is based out of McMaster. And so when she had gone that role, um, you know, one of my previous lab mates, Danielle, she started working um, for the Institute and her and I would talk all the time because we worked really closely together. And she was always telling me about how much she liked the job. So she would always talk about the job and be like, oh, you know, working here is so great and she she did a really good job selling it and so when I was trying to think of like next steps I knew a few things I loved research I loved learning but I knew I didn't want to stay in a bench role so I didn't want to do a postdoc because long term I didn't see myself being a PI I didn't see myself running a lab that wasn't really where I was my interest lie and so for me I, I kind of ruled out the postdoc pretty quickly I have to say I mean it, it, you know there's a lot of people that might try to convince you your PIs want you to be stay right they want to keep you in academia and, and it's because they've trained you they've worked with you and they if they feel like you can do it they're really supportive but for me I just knew I didn't want that path um but then having spoken to Danielle so much and seeing sort of her experience working for III it was something I was considering like oh that would be really cool but at the same time like we don't really know what kind of jobs are out there as grad students sometimes like we see the same jobs over and over and so for me like even the job title like project officer it's just a title I don't really know what it means and so Charu and, had a few, Charu and I had a few conversations about this and and she kind of presented me with a really unique opportunity where she said look let's do a six-month contract where you can come in try this job out get to get a feel of the of what the work is that we do see if you like it we'll get to see if you know you're a good fit if you if the work if it works out then we can extend and we can see where it goes and so to me that was perfect like I would love to try a job out right like not have the commitment and then still be able to see so that's kind of the approach I took and um as a project officer so I've been there so i been there since June of last year it's almost been a year I'm actually like um I think a few months away now it's already April but um when I started as you can imagine a lot of the work that the institute was doing was focused around COVID so um when I joined my role as a project officer was really to support the project managers that we have on their files so in our institute we have different research portfolios and uh, we have different people that manage the scientific aspects of that and CHR as a whole we're a funding agency so we're always putting out different funding calls and supporting researchers so uh, 
I would say when I started off, my role was, like I said, really supporting project um, managers with whatever they needed. So whatever file they were working on, if there was tasks that needed to be done, they would come to me because we were so heavy in the COVID space. You know, um, we were supporting any and all COVID requests, whether they were coming from, you know, the ministry, from CIHR, from public health. We were just kind of coordinating sort of, again, with the research lens, right? Like, for example, some, they might be, someone might be curious to know, okay, what's the latest that's being done in terms of vaccine development within this research scope of COVID? And then that's where I got to use and I still continue to use a lot of my skills for my PhD, right? We know how to do literature reviews. So that's how I set out. I have a question. I do my literature review, see, gather the information. But then we do what we do best, which is analyze it and identify gaps. And that's exactly what I do in this role is like you kind of take a look, scan the literature, identify what might be missing. What is it that we need to focus on? Where are those needs? You know, where should we maybe potentially develop funding opportunities to address those needs and sort of that's the scope, I would say, of the type of work I do. Um, but then as time moved on, I've been able to take on more responsibility. So now I get to be a scientific lead for the HIV and sexually transmitted and bloodborne infection file for III. And so again, it's really about shaping the funding opportunity. So as researchers, you know, we go on to ResearchNet on CIHR, we see the funding opportunity. So I'm working on the flip side of it, which is really writing those and developing those funding opportunities. And we work really closely with the team at CIHR Central, which is in Ottawa, in order to develop those because it's it's not just about the there's so many different considerations that need to go into it and there's like the whole development of the funding opportunity the delivery of it you know i got to uh see how reviews are done which was really cool and sit in on some of those so it's 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 a little bit interesting because as grad students were on the flip side of it where we're the, we're the ones asking for the money and applying for these opportunities and pis they're applying to these grants but now i'm working on the other side where we're the ones trying to develop and deliver um but of course, you know, at the end of the day, that's the great thing about science is the decisions come down to other scientists. So the review process, like once it hits that process, you know, it's out of our hands. Our job really is to make sure that, like I said, we're addressing those gaps. Can we put out funding calls that are going to really help advance areas that need it the most? So that's sort of a gist. Now, in terms of my day to day, because of COVID, it could be really, really crazy busy, right? Like there's um, there's requests coming in that have very rapid turnaround. So that's one thing I think I've really learned and it's very different because in grad school, you know, you kind of work on your own, at your own pace in, in a sense, right? You get to do things when it fits into your schedule or, or you kind of just get to, and you get to really reflect and think about a lot of things. Whereas in a job like this, it's a lot of fast turnaround. So you're just expected to like, you get a task and then it's like, okay, by the end of the day, I need this, right? So um, that was a little bit of getting used to and adjusting to was being able to just do things a lot more efficiently than I was used to. But it's, it's again, it's a skill that I didn't have that I, that I'm developing and uh, I hope to be able to have by the end of this all. So yeah, in a nutshell, I guess that would be sort of the work I'm doing. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And would you say that now, like, for example, during grad school, you're kind of working for yourself, like you have your PI, but a lot of the time you kind of set your own goals, your own pace. Is it was it like difficult to adjust to having more of like a strict schedule after that, after grad school? Yes and no. I mean, OK, you know, in grad school, you're always working. Um, your mind is never turned off. 
it doesn't matter. Like you're you're working even when you think you're not working, you're always thinking about your project. And and in that sense, like I didn't find it hard to do the reverse, right? Like here we're just like, you know what? You need to work during work hours and then you need to just put it away because that's work and and this is like your your normal personal life. So it was difficult in the sense, like I said, like just being able to do things very rapidly was a little bit of adjustment, but the schedule and everything, I personally like I I really like it because I'm a very task oriented person. So I like otherwise I would procrastinate, I feel, which is obviously what we do a lot in grad school sometimes. But yeah, for I didn't find that difficult. Like working again, it's you know, um, I, I'm really lucky again where th- that the environment I work with and is so positive and like everyone I work with, the team is so great and supportive that it just makes that transition was super easy. And because I already know my boss, because I have, you know, I work with people that I actually knew before as well, it made it really easy. So maybe I got lucky in that sense. And then uh, what other new skills do you think you learned that you necessarily didn't really acquire or hone in during your PhD? Oh, yeah, like there's probably a ton, but I'm going to just, I guess, if I think about it, the one thing, like I had mentioned, I was more interested in something more on the global scale, global health scale. And that's something I think I'm getting a getting to experience a lot in this space, learning more about policy and science policy, you know. Um, that's something I think is going to become super important. Like it's already important right now because of COVID, but I think it's just going to continue to be more and more important as people really realize how, what a difference science makes, right? And I think that's where this new area of science policy is going to be so important. And I was initially like, that was my interest. I was like, okay, I'm going to try and work at CIGR so I can gain more knowledge about science policy and skills in that area um, because it that's where like I said my interest lies how can we use you know how within the space of science can we make things better and help people the most and I think science policy allows you to do that and I think with COVID it's become more apparent that in these policy roles we need more scientists you know um, I think that this is really helping this position and this role and being in that environment that's very policy driven driven is really helping me so i think those are the skills that i'm i think are are the most valuable that i'm getting out of this experience mm-hmm. that sounds awesome and then uh do you see yourself continuing within this space i know that you want to get into more policy related work um what do you think your next steps would be for your career yeah, see, here's where, like I said, I'm so bad at planning. I know it's so I, I I remember one of your guests had made a comment that it's so important to plan. And it is honestly, I wish I could be more like, I guess, strategic with the things I do. But at the same time, if it's work this far, it's fine. But um, I don't really know what my long term career goal is at this point. I every opportunity I just see as a learning opportunity. I'm still trying to soak things in like I may be done my PhD, but I am not done learning. So um, I really like what I do right now. Like I said, I love the people I work with. It's a great environment and I'm learning so much that I didn't know or, you know, I didn't get to learn during my PhD that for now, I'm just looking to soak in as much knowledge as I can and grow those skills. But long term, just in, I guess, in general, yeah, I really think I want to stay within policy, science policy, maybe the government, um, you know, or working for an organization like um, the World World Health Organization, like that would be super exciting. And I, I can 
maybe picture myself there in like, I don't know, 20, 30 years. But yeah, um, I don't have any like concrete goals, but I, I think I like the space that I'm in and I definitely see myself staying within science policy. Okay, great. I think that ends uh, my section. So I think Dom is just going to close up the interview now. Sure. So honestly, thanks for everything. Um, thanks for all of your time and really thanks for breaking it down. And just kind of to echo what Anna was saying before, like, it's just really great to hear you talk about your path and talk about like, not really having like, models of people who have like close to you, people who have gone through this whole process and all of the things that come with that and all of your advice. So for the our last question that we usually ask um, all of our guests. So really looking back on your training and your research experience, what advice would you give to yourself when you first started? So I first had thought initially when I finished my PhD, or not, sorry, not finished. When I was going through my PhD, I had first said to myself, why did I spend my summers working in a summer camp? And why was I not in a lab, you know, getting all these skills? Maybe life would have been easier. I used to always think that. I used to be like, man, like, I should have planned a bit better. I should have tried to, like, prepare myself for this career path. And I, I did think that. But now, and I haven't gone through all that, I don't feel the same way anymore. I think, like, the advice I would give myself is just stay open to any possibilities. I think that is one thing I would tell anybody who's in grad school, you know, you only limit yourself by what you say no to. Even when you think you're, it, it's not possible or you think it's going to be hard, just try it out. You know, everything's not going to work. But if you push yourself, like that's when you're really going to learn and grow. So I think like looking back, I would just tell myself to like stay open to everything, be a little bit more, like I said, I wish I had become a bit more, um, I guess, stepped out of my shell a bit more early on, because I feel like I missed out on years of getting to know more people and really, you know, growing that, um, that friend base I was talking about in grad school. Um, so yeah, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change, like, I wouldn't change anything that happened, just because I think that it, it all, it all fed into sort of the whole experience. And um, like I said, looking back, I learned so much. I met so many great people. Um, I guess also, you know, I mentors, just friends, all of that. So yeah, I would just say like reflecting on it all, just stay open to things and um, don't limit yourself because you, the sky really is the limit. You're going to get, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. Um, and that 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 really matters, I think, because I I think that it helps you live without the sense of regret, because you won't regret it because you tried, right? If you tried and you gave it your all, then what what is there to regret? So, that's sort of like my parting wisdom, I guess, to people. Thank you so much. Thanks for that advice, and thank you again for taking the time out um, to speak with us today. Thank you for all of your advice, and this was a great episode. Oh, no problem. Honestly, I have to say I've watched your, I've not watched, listened to your podcast. And I think you guys are doing a great job. I still remember when Anna said that they wanted to do this podcast during our communications meeting. And I, I was sitting there because for a while, I, it was a very small team, as in almost a one or two person team. And then it was great when these like all, all of everyone who wanted to be involved, I remember sitting there being like, wow, like, this younger generation is great. Like, look how 
look how you know involved they want to be and they're all so eager and I, I sat there and Anna brought up the podcast and I was like oh yeah do it I just want nothing to do with it because I can't handle more work but like look at where you brought it it's it's awesome like I'm so proud of you guys um you do a great job I think I think it'll it'll help get voices heard that might not be heard and it also just provides a great venue for um you know uh, students and trainees to hear about op options and opportunities, which, like I said, is difficult. We don't get to hear about how diverse the job market can be and what's out there. And um, yeah, I think I think what you guys are doing is great. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for staying until the end. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Bagri. She was so transparent and so warm and gave such amazing advice. It was an absolute joy speaking with her. And we hope you had a great time listening as well. Along with that, please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Immuno and Beyond to keep up with new episodes and new information. And also consider following the McMaster Immunology Research Center on Twitter to keep up with interesting research happening at the center. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.